Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator doing a Zoom residency interview. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. I'm Lenny Buller. I work at Indiana University, where my favorite and only robot is the Roomba that cleans my floors. I also have no conflicts of interest with these studies or the devices discussed. I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. We just got a medical facility, so I won't be doing any actual work during this podcast, much like my surgeries from now on. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. And I'm Chai Kruger. I'm an academic orthopedic surgeon at the Rothman Institute and someone who is quite fond of using the robot as a dance move, but trying to figure out how to better use it during all of my surgeries. So we're here with uh, Dr. Art Malkani for a little bit of a brief introduction. He's a professor at the University of Louisville, along with being the chief of adult reconstruction and the fellowship director for the adult reconstruction at that institution. Still, he finds time to run a very busy practice and is very active within AUKUS and many other organizations. I first met Dr. Malkani when he was the chair at an ICJR meeting on emerging technologies and joint replacement. And as someone who has extensively studied and in being intimately involved with these technologies, I thought he'd be a perfect guest for this podcast. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about robotics, and I look forward to hearing what he and everyone else has to say. So, Dr. Malkani, welcome. It's a pleasure to be on board. Thank you so much. I just can't understand why the young arthroplasty group would want to invite me, who's a lot older than you guys are, but I'm a pleasure to be here. Again, as Chad said, I'm at the University of Louisville, been here for about 25 years now, ever since my fellowship. So it's my first job and my only job. So I've been blessed in the same town. Got a wonderful uh, program here with fellows, residents, medical students. And I think in the past, for the past decade, I've been just trying to solve clinical problems. Where am I struggling with my patients? How can I improve my patient outcomes? I am conflicted. I receive royalties and I have a consulting work with uh, Stryker. Thanks, Dr. Makani. So we thought this topic was actually particularly timely given a recent New York Times article lauding the benefits of robots. I imagine this New York Times article, which reaches the entire country, is probably going to be a source of a number of patient questions to all of our colleagues around the country. So most listeners will probably know this, but we can briefly go over the difference between robotic, navigated, and um, manual instrument surgeries. In navigated knee replacement, a computerized device provides positional measurements during the procedure and the surgeon performs the cuts. So in robotic knee replacement, a device or computer creates a customized treatment plan that allows for positional measurements and also a surgeon-controlled robotic arm uh, prepares the bone. In manual instrument surgery, this is performed with off-the-shelf cutting guides and instruments. I think it's also important to mention that whether you're doing it annually or with robots, the incisions are the same, the implants are the same. And the bottom line is the surgeon is the one who's control of your surgery. There's nothing magical happening with a robot outside of trying to improve the techniques that we are already using. So let's go around and discuss what we each use. I use navigation in my total knee replacements, and I don't use any technology in my hips. I really don't want to have to shove a rod up a femur. And also, I think it improves my accuracy in restoring a neutral mechanical alignment, which is something that I believe in. We know cement works well in compression, probably not in shear. And as a result, I think that in cemented total knee arthroplasties, which is still the majority of my cases, ample evidence that 
that probably exists that reliably restoring a mechanical axis to neutral should improve survivorship for a long time. Chad, what do you use? I use it pretty sparingly. I will say when I do use it, it tends to be on unis. I don't really have a reason for that. Although I think the technical nature of, of a uni does kind of make itself maybe more appealing to a robot for me. I will use it on some patients, especially those that are complex with previous femoral fractures or something along those lines, where maybe the intramedullary guide rod would be difficult to use for the femur. But otherwise, I'm, I'm pretty selective in terms of who I used it for. Mark, how about you? So I'm pretty much the same as Chad. I don't use navigation mostly because we haven't had it in the past. Now that is changing as of next week. So for the next day, I am still manual only. We do have a navigation system. I found it to be a little bit clunky, just not something that I would use on every patient just because it takes a long time. And I didn't think that it improved patient outcomes enough to justify its use. Anna? Similar to the, the rest of you guys. So I use navigation in specific patients that have a clinical reason that I wouldn't want to use an IM rod, or in some cases with a severe valgus deformity where I'm really concerned about getting the distal femur cut perfect. I'm open to the possibility of robot, but as we'll see when we discuss this, a lot of this is institution dependent and out of your hands as an individual surgeon. Dr. Malkani, we know you use the robot. Give us a little bit of a history of why you got there. Obviously, it was to improve outcomes and how you use it. Yeah, so I mean, this evolved back in about 2001, 2002. So the first person to get navigation in the USA was a guy named Kenny Krakow. So we were the second one to get navigation the same year. So I did several hundred cases with navigation, but my clinical outcomes did not improve. So I abandoned navigation way back when and just use it as Anna said, selective cases when I didn't, when I, you know, stenosis in the femur, prior hardware, things like that. So you don't have to instrument the femoral canal or the tibial canal. It was a great operation. I would probably do 12 navigation cases a year because a knee really, as we all know, is a soft tissue procedure, right? I mean, so the navigation did not resolve that soft tissue procedure. So when you do a, a CR knee, for example, sometimes your slope may be a little too much or too less and you'll have a tight PCL. How do you address those intraoperative techniques to try to correct that function gap? So it's all about balancing the soft tissues. And whatever tools you have in your bag of tricks to help you do that, I, I think is useful. Unfortunately, we look at the coronal plane and we look at navigation and it's, it's good to have that, but it doesn't improve clinical outcomes because, and uh, you know, as uh, I think Leonard was saying that he does all neutral mechanical access. We look at Bellman's paper, less than 1% of people live in a native neutral mechanical access, zero degrees, less than 1%. That shouldn't be our target. I think we have to relook at what our target is. We have to look at how to get there. Realistically, I don't know where I am in my primary knee with manual instruments. I don't know if I've got three of errors or neutral alignment. I don't know how much valgus I have. And, and so, I mean, there's a whole span. If you look at Mark Pagnell's article from the Mayo Clinic, you know, I mean, those who were outliers did better than do neutral mechanical access. So I think if we look at all this stuff as to where, what our target is, I mean, we have solid, like if you look at a hip, for example, everybody, I mean, the safe zone is supposed to be 45 and 20. You'll get dislocations at 45 and 20. Some people have 10 degrees anti Some people are greater than 20 degrees anti You have to try to match the patient's anatomy. Just to understand a little bit more about the robot reproducing patient anatomy in a knee, and it's a soft tissue procedure, how does the robot reproduce the pre-arthritic state currently to restore yeah. that? that soft tissue balance. Yeah. So we look at the coronal alignment, always that's historically, but you have to look at the sagittal plane. So when we look at the robot, for example, if I could show you a case, you'd be impressed. I was impressed with it. So I first got the robot. I was looking at neutral mechanical axis. And I realized on the screen, you're actually looking at the femoral implant as you're putting it on in neutral mechanical alignment, you are nothing allowed from the condyle by six, sometimes seven millimeters. 
all these patients I had for 20 years with some lateral knee pain every so often, I thought it was neurogenic. It's really, it's hydrogenic. We're doing this to the patient. We're stretching out their, distalizing the femur, we're increasing the posture condyle, or we have less posture condyle. So we're really off, we're adding additional sort of uh, increasing the soft tissue sleeve, their tension. And so I think it's, it's better to have someone with the 87 of tibia varus and five off femoral valgus rather than zero alignment. And if you look at what it does to the implant where you put it where the bony anatomy is, it's more favorable for that patient to be in that state rather than stretching, actually rotating the femur and releasing medial structures. Why would you want to release a normal medial collateral ligament? I mean, I'm not talking about severe deformities. We're talking about seeing someone with five or six of errors. You don't need to be doing releases for those patients. You put the tibia in two of errors and that you just increase your medial joint space. So with man instruments, I'm not that good of a surgeon. I know what two degrees is, what three degrees is. Guys, young guys like you with who playing video games all your life, Leonard, you guys are good at this stuff. I got to look at a computer screen, you know? And uh, so it's- You have no idea how good of a surgeon Lenny is, Dr. Malcolm. <laughs> well, that's, that is part of the reason why I use navigation. I do dial in a couple of degrees in, in the sphere cases, so I don't have to release soft tissues. I agree. I think about if you had that information within a millimeter and gap spaces within a millimeter, I mean, that's, that's a difference. So- I can tell you that this is evolving. We're just starting. We're in the first phase. I remember having a debate. I was a medical student, and there was a debate between arthroscopic bank heart surgery versus a open bank heart surgery. And I don't know anyone that's open bank hearts anymore, right? So I think in 10 years, we'll have a different conversation. I mean, this is evolving. You got to have people who are, once it takes off, it really takes off. But I love the fact that you guys are skeptical. I was there too. I didn't believe any of this stuff. I went to test my skills with the robotic system in Houston many years ago, and I said, this is nonsense, but I was sold when you see the, what it can do for you. It just makes you a better surgeon. It gives, tells me exactly where I'm going, but no question, this is evolving. By no means, we have, any, we have proof that it's better than manual instruments right now. We're just trying to figure out where to put the parts in for patients, and once we have that, I think we'll have a better idea if it's helping patients. If that's all true, why don't robotic studies consistently show better outcomes compared to manually done knees? What do you think the variables are? Because robotics is supposed to take the variables out of it. Right. Because you're putting the implants in not the best position for that patient. Your question is excellent. And it's too early to answer that question. You need multiple studies answering that question. You got multiple centers working on this, on that, trying to answer that for you, but it's too soon to say that because we don't know where to put the patient's parts in yet. We need the data for that kind of stuff. I think this is a great introduction, right? Because it kind of shows both avenues of thinking. Um, And certainly, it really does come down to patient outcomes and patient satisfaction. The first paper we're going to talk about tonight, I'll briefly give a summary of it for our listeners. This is a paper that came from your institution, is improved patient satisfaction following robotic assisted total arthroplasty. It was published in the Journal of Knee Surgery in 2019. So the whole idea of the study was to determine if patient satisfaction could be improved with the use of robotic-assisted total knee arthroplasties compared to manually uh, instrumented uh, total knee arthroplasties. They had over 100 patients with robotic-assisted total knees and another 100 patients get manual t- uh, total knees. And then they followed the patients for a year, obtained uh, knee society scores and Likert scores as well. The groups are very similar in terms of demographics and preoperative function, and they had the same procedure, same post-op protocol, which is important when evaluating any of these studies, just to make sure you're actually comparing like groups. Briefly with the results, 94% of the patients with a robotic-assisted knee were satisfied or very satisfied at the year mark, compared to 82% of those with the manual total knee arthroplasty. So, so there was a, a pretty good size difference there. Overall, the knee society scores were similar between the groups at six weeks and one year, but the robotic total knee group had better six-week and one-year knee society functional scores. So the robotic total knee arthroplasty patients seemed to have more satisfaction and better functional scores compared to the manual scores. 
uh, the operative time was a little bit longer in robotics, but again, I don't think that's abnormal to this study. I think that's pretty well published uh, throughout as well. So briefly for the strengths of the study, uh, they were similar cohorts, which again, I think is very important. Selection bias is certainly very prevalent in some of the data, uh, looking at, at robotic uh, joints in general, determining which patients get the robot, which patients don't, unless you have people who use it all the time. Some of the limitations, it wasn't randomized or blinded. So yeah, certainly, you know, that's kind of hard to do with robots. And certainly with, with certain ones where you have to put in the pins to assist with the navigation and travel, unless you made like sham incisions on patients and somehow the surgeons didn't know they were using the robot themselves. And the outcome point of one year is uh, a little short, but at the same time, for the measures of the study, I, I think it was quite useful. So the take-home points for me are that, you know, it's kind of hard to say, but it did seem that, that patients did seem more satisfied with robots. And again, I'm, I'm not someone who uses robots all the time, but I'm also not someone who poo-poos the data. Right. I mean, if we have studies like this that show higher patient satisfaction and better outcomes, I'm open to change. I don't have any issues about it. And like was brought up before by Dr. Malkani, I, I think we're working towards gathering that data. And it unfortunately it does take some time and some patience to kind of make that happen. And I think it's also important to point out that uh, selection bias, like I said, is a concern for some of these studies. The bottom line is I don't think one way works best for any one patient. Everyone is unique. And even if we're trying to do the same thing over and over again for our patients, it's likely we are making some deviations intraoperatively depending on the patient's anatomy. It may, and the robot would certainly seem to allow you to control what you're doing, uh, at least preoperatively and part of the planning process, maybe intraoperatively as well, a little bit more. So Dr. Malkani, this is your study. I hope I did it justice with that relatively quick summary. But you know, what would you want the take-home message to be for the readers before I open it up to the floor to the other hosts as well? The take-home message really is that I think you should use some tool to give you a better accuracy as to where you're putting your implants and what your gaps are. It's all about the gaps. You have to have a stable gaps in flexion extension. I think you have to put the parts that does not deviate significantly from the patient's native anatomy. And I think that's why I have a little better patient satisfaction. We're looking at multiple other studies following this. But this patient, actually, I, there are days when I didn't have a robot. So I used managed instruments. And there are days that I had robots, we used robots. It was really the same time period. I didn't, there was no patient selection, just whoever fit in that room. And because of this study, we forced the hospital to get a second robot. So now all of our needs are done with the robot. And we just feel better about it now. One thing I found interesting from the results were that the manual cases actually stayed up to a half a day longer on average. And you guys didn't really comment on this in the discussion, but why do you think the manual cases stayed longer? You know, I, I really am not sure. I mean, I think if you don't penetrate the femoral canal, I think that maybe there's less trauma there, maybe less discomfort, but they're same time periods. So one day we did manuals, one day we did robotics. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you think the robot could have a placebo effect on patient-reported outcomes? So patients don't even know they're getting a robot. We're just telling them we're going to use this. You know, they don't even know. You do all inside pins? Right. Yeah, so they're, they're, so tibia is outside, but the femoral is inside. I'll give an example. So after this study, we wanted to do a prospective randomized study. So when you get a patient say, listen, I'm going to try to randomize you one or the other, then they explain to them, well, one case, I'm going to put a femoral rod, a little rod up to your hole, get the line things up. And another case, when you use a computer, before I get finished the sentence, it goes, I'm not part of that. I want the robot. So it's just it's so difficult to do the portion randomized study in a topic like this? That's a good question because I'm curious, how do you go about that discussion in the office? Yeah, so right now, about 5% of my patients come to see me because of the robotic system, 5%. And the rest are just my own patients from word of mouth I've had over the years. So I do tell them that because patients want to know, and some patients, like I have some pharmacy doctors fix me up. They don't even care how you, you know, they trust you and that's it. 
I mean, that's probably the biggest thing you can do as a physician to gain a patient's trust. And that comes over time. But the bottom line is I just tell the patient, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm using this tool because I can now put things where they belong. I'm going to, I tell them exactly, I'm going to cap the end of the bolt piece of metal. I can cap in many ways. We'll try to cap it closest to your native anatomy. And I need a computer system to help me do that. And they get it. They get it. Yeah, so I tell them, they go, it's like a GPS. You, you know, yeah, but it's a GPS, but I'm driving to a different city every day and I have no idea where that city is. So it's so basically it's using some computers to help me. You have to explain to them in layman's terms as to what, what it does. Sure. It's kind of interesting, the GPS analogy, because I've heard it used the other way as well, where it's an argument for why you don't need a robot is because you're using a GPS and you're driving the same way every day by having that be a, a total knee. Yeah. Whereas you use the analogy, right, as someone, every knee is a little bit different. So therefore, that's why the GPS is useful. Every patella is different. Every femoral anatomy is different. You know, I mean, it goes on and on. So, and we're talking about, see, we're talking about subtle differences. If you guys saw the difference between mechanical and kinematic in one, the same patient, you can see that by two millimeters, three make such a big difference in where the implants are, in the gap measurements are. All right, I'd like to bring up implant design. Uh, implants that we're putting in, even with the robotic cases, were designed for manual implantation. So titrating an implant that was designed for this, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think we need new implants. I think you're right, Lenny, and you're the guy to do for us maybe, huh? But uh, the bottom, to me, uh, uh, right now, I like single radius design knees because of the extent the data out there that it helps with the extensor mechanism. And that's about it. So in many companies have single race design needs. So I think you can use robotic systems for, so it would be great if we had an open platform robotic system, an open platform. We wouldn't have a lot of discussions or talk about biases and all that stuff, you know I mean? But unfortunately we don't have that. We don't live in that utopian society here. We live in a capitalistic society. So you have to, you know, it's about competition, right? That's what we live at. That's what makes us better as surgeons. We're competing, you know, so it's, it's healthy. But the bottom line is, I think he'll have new designs as the years go on because it'll be a true research. Do you think that with 3D printing, with other sort of additive manufacturing now, can we truly come up with a patient-specific on the spot with the robot planning and then print it up right there? Is that something that's in our future? Yeah. I know on the spot, but I think you can, you can there'll be as efficiencies go on with uh, implant design and, and production manufacturing 3D. I, I don't see why that's not feasible. I mean, I can't believe we're doing what we're doing now. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'm doing this right now, you are out of your mind. So the next article we're going to discuss is titled, Does the Use of Intraoperative Technology Yield Superior Patient Outcomes Following Total Neurectoplasty? This is by Singh et al. out of NYU, and it was published in the November 2020 edition of Journal of Arthroplasty. This is a retrospective review of just over 7,000 primary total neurectoplasties divided based upon technology utilized intraoperatively, including navigation, robotics, and manual instruments. The authors found surgical time to be significantly longer in the robotics and navigation versus the manual group and found no difference in patient reported outcome measures at one year. I think this was a nicely done retrospective analysis of a huge number of cases. They used clinically relevant outcome measures, including practical measures like intraoperative time, which we know is associated with perioperative complications and also surgical efficiency which is very important considering the projected growth of primary arthroplasty cases nationwide in our transition towards an outpatient model. And the time difference they found was an average of 15 minutes longer in robotics cases. Additionally, the PROMs they used, namely the Coos Jr. score and the forgotten joint score are validated outcome measures that have well-established minimal clinically important differences and also are actually pretty good for these higher end outcomes considering they have uh, pretty high ceiling effects. So each of the groups achieved an average improvement greater than the minimal clinically important difference. 
In terms of weaknesses, the vast majority of cases, actually 91%, were manual. And given the retrospective nature of this study, this could represent a pretty significant selection bias towards utilization of technology in more complex cases. They did do a post hoc power analysis to demonstrate they could detect relevant differences with the numbers available, however. Additionally, they didn't evaluate all navigation and robotic systems out there, so it's possible that these results might not necessarily be generalizable to other systems, but I think that's pretty unlikely. So for Dr. Malkani, how are these results so different from yours? They mean, well, I think a lot of flaws in this article. I think they basically lump navigation and two robotic platforms together. Not all cementless knees are the same. Not all robotic platforms are the same. They had 17 different surgeons and 53 manual surgeons. And I just made some notes here. And I have no idea what their target alignment was. Uh, was neutral mechanical axis the same for all of them? I have no idea. And I think too, you know, like the, the length of stay, if I remember correctly, was like three days or something for this as well. And I agree that with any retrospective study, there's confounders. I think there could be some going on here for this group too. Yeah. The message to me in this study at the end with, you know, they're actually saying that this data suggests that new innovations and in technology should focus on better defining implant positioning during TKA, perhaps other than neutral mechanical access and soft tissue balancing and patellar positioning to achieve superior outcomes. So I think they're trying to get the message that use this tool to, to evolve and get uh, do a better job in your patient. Uh, so I, I think I don't care about length of stay. I don't care about tourniquet times. Right now, my tourniquet time, average tourniquet time, I've now done over a thousand of these, is about 45 minutes, sometimes 46, sometimes 39, but it just makes a matter of time before you get a rhythm and know what you're doing. The first 100 cases, we're just learning what the data is showing us, how, what to, how to interpret this data, what to do with it. They see the learning curve is back 15 cases, 15 cases to put the pins in to un- do that stuff, but to really learn, to understand what the data means and how to interpret it, what to do with it. It took me 100 or so cases to know what I'm doing. And they finally got into rhythm. And now it's, it's like 40th minute tourniquet time. So it's length of stage tourniquet time. Not, I'm not, multiple factors are also important for that, or lead to that result, but it's really putting the parts in the best position for that patient and accurately. And I think that's probably the best we can do right now. Dr. Malkani, for those surgeons who are contemplating going forward with robotics and and taking that leap a little bit more, I mean, what's the best way to transition? Do you dip your toe or do you just say, I'm just going to dive in and do it all? Right. It's either that doing another infected total knee. So I'd rather stick with these cases for a while. All right. So, I mean, it's a matter of my third of my practice, revision surgeries, you know, and distal femurs, triflanges. So this is fun because I'm getting data that I have to interpret. Who says orthopedic is not a cerebral field? I mean, you got to see some of this data coming at you. If my 84-year-old mother can learn how to use an iPhone, I think anybody can use a uh, computer to help them do their surgery. It's just data. It's giving you data to make a decision. And that's when the time comes in. That's where the longer tourniquet time is. You're deciding what to do. And then once you get that flow, that algorithm in your head, it's a no-brainer then. Makes sense. Thank you. So I wanted to bring up another recent study from the Journal of Arthroplasty. They looked into about 50 or so studies looking at total knee and unicompartmental knee arthroplasties uh, involving robotics. And they found that 91% of the authors had a financial conflict of interest. They also found that studies with conflicted authors were more likely to report favorable outcomes. So I just wanted to ask our guests and the group, what are your thoughts on the sort of the question of whether authors of these studies should or shouldn't have financial conflicts of interest with the companies that make the implants and the robots. We need someone to use the technology so we can study it. And I do think a lot of the authors of these papers are kind of at the tip of the spear, if you will. 
in terms of developing and, and trying to refine these technologies? And when that comes either in agreement with a company who's developing it or some type of relationship there. Those are my thoughts. Chad, I, I would agree with that um, to a certain point, but the or the robot at this point in time is pretty ubiquitous. Like it is everywhere. And so it's not just the tip of the spear anymore. Like it is the entire spear that is out there. And so I guess I might disagree a little bit in that there's enough robots out there that there should be good papers from people without financial conflicts of interest uh, to kind of support this stuff. Well, the Totalies have only been out, this is the third year for Totally, you know, third, and approaching the fourth year. So it takes a while for people to first get their foot in the door and then start publishing papers. So it's true, but there's some good five-year data that's non-conflicted on unis. It's come out of Australian registries, a lot of places showing the benefits of robotic systems. Well, if you're talking about knees, it's just way too early to have the masses start using it and then giving good data on that kind of stuff. I also wonder too, Mark, bigger universities tend to do more of the research, right? Smaller private practice groups tend not to be very research centric. Personally, in my area, it tends to be kind of the smaller groups that get the, the robots first. And we can talk about reasons for that later. But I think that may be part of, again, this issue in terms of getting researched out there on this. I think a lot of the people who use a robot right now aren't necessarily participating in research, but they are certainly using the robot quite frequently. I think there's a difference between a relevant conflict of interest where people are receiving royalties or fees in kind or consulting fees, and sometimes on the order, like in this study of high six figures, versus funding research with the goal of driving scientific exploration. And, and when you see reports of favorable outcomes predominating, obviously science we know has a publication bias towards positive studies. And particularly when there's editors of journals and reviewers that are potentially conflicted, these conflicts, they kind of tend to all get washed together. But I think it should be taken with a grain of salt that you're more likely to read a positive study period. And even with these positive biases, the results might not necessarily be as staggeringly different as what we would hope or what the conflicted authors might hope. Lenny, the, the reality is you're right. You know, the percentage of AUKUS members that are conflicted, the percentage of our academy boards that are conflicted. I mean, just you, you mentioned right there, editors, reviewers, they're not potentially, they are conflicted. I mean, that's absolutely right. As long as that's a different conversation. That's probably another podcast you can do on conflict of interest in our academy and how we can change that. But going back to 1980s, when cementless hips first came out, people were talking about conflict of interest. They bring, bring out a cementless. You should have seen this stuff talk about conflict of interest at that point. You know, Every aspect of our, our evolution has been started with somebody and they were conflicted. And then if it worked, it worked. Then you had data from the next generation of surgeons using it. They were positive. And then people bought into it, you know? that Rogers of evolution of implants, right? I mean, you're the early adopters and you have data. If it's not good data, like metal on metal, then it crashes and burns. If it's good data, it'll keep on going on. And that data comes from people who are not conflicted. That'll be the next five years, there'll be people putting out data on this kind of stuff. So the next article we're gonna talk about kind of delves into the other aspect of robotics. So uh, this article was from September, 2020. It's robotic assisted total knee arthroplasty an assessment of content quality and readability of available internet resources. So kind of my intro, the medicine is a business. Again, the robot is a powerful tool that can get people in the door. The question is, are claims being made online and are they accurate? Are these maybe exaggerated a little bit to get people in the door? And are they outrageous and are they inaccurate? Maybe 
not unlike claims that are made about the anterior approach to the hip. Yeah, I went there. Okay, so the summary of this article, the authors utilized a clean browser, obviously not Lenny's, on three different search engines, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, to search the words robotic total knee replacement. They utilized the top 50 sites from each of these three engines, which were then pared down to 72 original sites for analysis. They included community hospitals, academic centers, and a couple others, including news sources and whatnot. Now, the benefits of total knee arthroplasty were usually mentioned by pretty much all the websites. The risks were more often mentioned by community websites compared to academic websites, although to a little bit lesser degree. So they defined accurate claims as a better placement of the prosthesis. So they said inaccurate claims were more often mentioned by private websites. Interestingly enough, all pretty much universally, the reading level was set at a college level or above. Uh, so I thought the biggest strength of the study is just how practical it was. You know, when people want to know about robotic surgery, they open their web browser and they type in robotic total knee arthroplasty or total knee replacement or something along that iteration. Um, another strength, it broke, broke down the websites as how good the information was, where it was coming from. And this is debatable, but I thought they did a good job of defining what the actual strengths of robotics were at this point in time. So limitation of the study, you know, we go through this with each internet related study, but each browser is going to display something different based on your past searching history, based on the profile of the user and all that. So this probably is not an accurate assessment of what people are actually going to see in their own browser when they type in robotic total knee arthroplasty. Marketing is definitely a big part of the robotics. And so I guess questions for you, Dr. Malkani, is do you market it? Should it be marketed? Is there a danger in marketing this technology? So Mark, so you're saying that things mentioned on the internet are inaccurate and uh, <laughs> unregulated? I, I am shocked. I'm just a truly shocked. You believe it. Comment, you know? So, uh, look, he lives in Oregon. He doesn't get out much. The internet's so new up there. The internet's, it's just a squirrel turning on a wheel. That's how I'm getting power right now. Yeah, so I don't have a Facebook page, a Twitter account. We don't market anything. Uh, just, uh, we don't market at all. It's just, uh, you know, our university does have a website, what we do, but we don't market anybody out there. But no question, the robotics is a thing that is well marketed. And especially by private institutions, this is something that appeals to, I mean, even my parents, they called me and said, Mark, are you using the robot? It is so much better. I mean, they don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about outcomes, but it's it's powerful. You say robot and people latch on to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so you mentioned something earlier about antibody chips. Would have been great for them to do a comparative study, the same points they're trying to make and compare that to antibody chips marketing. You know, I wonder, I wonder what the parallel would have been there, you know, uh, is, is it better, that kind of stuff, you know? It'd been fun to do something like a comparative study of those two rather than just put out marketing. It's truly, most people who now it's, it's marketing, there's not enough data out there to show you that it makes a big difference in someone's life. It, it doesn't, I, because again, to me, it has to do with putting the parts in the right place and balancing the soft tissues, all that stuff. So right now, I think it's premature to make those claims. I agree with you. You know, who regulates this stuff online? Should there be somebody responsible for enforcing the dissemination of accurate healthcare? Yeah, Should Mark the Academy sure. or AUKUS, like, <laughs> why? <laughs> Lenny, have you paid attention Should, to our country in the past year? No, within, if you're board certified or an AUKUS fellow, should you have some ethical responsibility to, to not misrepresent the surgeries that you're doing? And should, should a board oversee that? Should there be accountability for the statements that you're making in an attempt to get more patients in the door? Totally. Because we're not the general public and we shouldn't be held to the same level. We should hold ourselves to a higher standard, I think. I think Lenny's going to chair the Internet Snitch Committee. Well, the Academy has a board, right? The Academy already has 
a committee that you can report somebody else for unethical violation of ethics. You can do that now, you know? That's mostly just for testifying against somebody using bad testimony as an expert yeah. witness, it seems like, yeah. when so, I read so those maybe blogs. expand that, perhaps, you know, I don't know, right? Yeah. Part of a new technology or new anything, a new approach, is letting people know, like, hey, you know, I, this is something I'm doing. If you want to be a part of this movement or this wave or what you just read about in the New York Times, I'm here to be your guy or girl. And I think that's a challenge that we're always going to face because right now it's robots, right? 10 years ago, it was anterior hips. 10 years from now, it's going to be who knows, you know, but it'll be, it'll be something else that has come along that people think could be a, a quote unquote game changer for our profession. I just hope I'm the one that develops it so that I can start talking about some conflicts that I have. Another 10 years, guys, that's exactly the right time period. Well, I guess one of the things that I did want to talk about, and I'm sure we have some listeners, all six of them that are curious about the, uh, we recently got a robot at our institution and I'm in private practice. I'm one of the younger guys and bringing a robot into the market is a little bit of a market disruptor. And so Dr. Mulcahy, I was wondering if you could walk, when you started using this, how did the politics and how did the relationships change in your practice of people that weren't using it and was it marketed and how did you navigate that? Because that's personally something that I'm going through right now. Yeah, I guess I have a more mature practice. And so in, in the sense, I was able to use a robot. I got the money for the robotic system from our hospital foundation. I had to present my reason why I'm doing the uh, robotic system to the board, which is about 20 people, including nuns, attorneys, things like that, or business people. And they said, yes, you're putting a need without knowing where you are. And they, well, I'm, I know I have some idea, but it's not perfect. So they, they gave us a robot and my partner's they do their own thing. I mean, they couldn't care less. Everybody's got pretty much mature practice. So uh, yeah, I think it was very easy. And because most of my partners even, not, not put it this way, three years later, after this came out, uh, everybody in the hospital is doing a knee with the robotic system because they understand that's more accurate, I think. Okay, and I guess I'll bring back my earlier question. Everyone's doing a knee with the robotic system. Is that a good thing? I think it is. I think you're putting things where they belong for that patient. I think for that patient, it's a good thing. Uh, my residents, they have to learn how to use management instruments too. So we do teach them how to do that. But it's, I think, good to put things where they belong. Yeah, I think more accuracy. Do you think that putting that, I guess, technology in the hands of people that haven't gone through, and this is kind of a loaded question, but putting that technology in the hands of people that maybe haven't gone through a adult reconstruction fellowship, that haven't gone through some of the training that, that we have in, in how to balance a knee and maybe what is the right position for that knee? Do you think there's a danger to that? In two weeks, my PGY3 resident can do a totally just as good as someone with 10 years experience because uh, it's about soft tissue balancing. And he's looking at a tool that tells him exactly what the numbers are. He knows I have to train him exactly what the options are instead of like in, in, a, uh, in a manual instruments, if the flexion gap is uh, tight, well, you can take a little more slope. Whereas here, if the flexion gap is tight, or I can take the femoral component and raise it up by a millimeter or two, I can do so many options. That's what you would teach them. In two weeks, they understand that. And they can do, in two weeks, they can do just as good as a some tenure experience. So I think it's a great teaching tool. I think it's a great uh, tool to use. I don't care any robotic platform that allows you to put things where you want and balance the gaps that's for that patient's benefit. Well, you have to be a total knee surgeon too. When you take the pins out, when the soft tissue now is a little bit lax, a little bit lax on you, because you just put some tension on the tissues of pins. So you have to be a knee surgeon also. You have to range the motion. You have to test the flexion gap. You just can't put a poly thickness based on what the computer tells you what the number is. 
And so you have to be a knee surgeon, know, know, have a feel for a stability also in that sense. It gives you closer to the target, but you still have to make sure the final decision of the poly thicknesses. I think that's a really important point to clarify with patients as well. The robot's not really doing the procedure, right? I think sometimes they don't understand that, right? You're still in charge and have to make these really important decisions about the whole picture once the cuts and everything are done. Yeah, 100% true. 80% of the time, I have to explain to the patient that, no, a robotic is not doing the surgery. I'm doing the surgery. I'm using it as a tool. And I give an example. They don't make a Boeing engine with a guy with a chisel and a mallet, right? It's a computerized system. So it's just, that's what we're doing. We're trying to machine your bone to make it as perfect as you can to fit this implant, close, be close to your native anatomy. Yeah. I'm doing the work, but I've got protections called boundaries and I've got perfection tools that with the robotic yeah. system. And it's a good analogy. Last question, and I promise I'll shut up. You kind of alluded to I don't, believe, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Yeah, not going to happen. I, I've had <laughs> I can't much. wait for Mark to fly to Louisville next month. I'm, I'm very excited for this. <laughs> it's going to be great. So you talked earlier about maybe one of the reasons why we don't have superior outcomes with robotic surgery is because we don't exactly know where to put the components for this exact patient, right? And so I guess to, to take a step back, what is the benefit to being super accurate if we don't know what's super accurate. Like if we don't know the target, if we can be very accurate with our cuts, what's the point of being accurate if we don't know if that's where they need to be, if that makes sense. It it just makes total sense. So until I get 100,000 cases with algorithms that tell me exactly where you need need to go, I'm putting things where I know it's bad. So I'm avoiding that bad situation. So when I, if I look at the lateral femoral condyle, I make sure my implant is not beyond the patient's native anatomy significantly. So I start with the lateral femoral condyle first. And after that, I go to the gaps and I have to make compromises. I've got only X number of sizes. We need more sizes. I think we need different implants to really match that. We're just just starting out. You're asking all the right questions, but unfortunately to get to the what game you want, it's gonna take a while to get there. And so I'm gonna make sure I put the parts so it's not gonna cause a problem with that patient with terms of instability, stretching out the tissues, things like that. So I put a more favorable zone for them. Soft tissue sleeve, a good soft tissue sleeve. Well, I guess what I've always thought is the the power behind this is if we can eventually find out that 70-year-old females with uh, valgus pre-op like their knees a little bit more lax and maybe put in three degrees of valgus or whatnot, then we can do that. But I guess not knowing that information, does that matter right now? It totally matters. Most valgus knees end up with a little bit of recovatums. If you take eight off the distal femur, there's a good chance you're going to have an extension game that's loose. These valgus knees that have been stretched out like that, you have to take less off the distal femur. And you see these numbers in front of you in the computer that the extension gap is, say, 20 and the flexion gap is 17. Well, that happens. I'm taking two less off the distal femur. I'm going to six. Now I'm closer to the flexion gap. You know, so all this is virtual before you make those cuts. And with the trials in, you can recut if you have to, one or two degrees here and there to perfect it if you want. Now, you guys are all asking the right questions. This is great. This is what I asked years ago. And I had manual instruments to play with this. You know, I had these custom-made jigs for me for one degree this, one degree that. But... It's just, just, this is much easier, more fun. Well, I think, you know, Mark and I both remember from fellowship, Tom Brown would always say, was it a measure with a micrometer, mark with a crayon and cut with an ax? So it seems like that's a lot (laughs) of what we do with our manual. uh, (laughs) But maybe we can cut a little better than an ax with with a robot. Correct. And and I think this has been a a great discussion. You know, I I really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us this evening. Uh, I've I've certainly learned some and and, and my perspective is, you know, changing. I really appreciate taking the time to come on. Email me right now. We're doing a project looking at virtually mechanical versus kinematic in the same patient. You can do that. It takes maybe two minutes in the OR to do this. And I'll show you if you want to just email me and I'll be happy to send you two images 
uh, two different cases and where the implants are compared to mechanical axis versus kinematic of that patient. And you can pick where you want your implant to be if there's your need. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Malkani for joining us. Make sure to visit the Young Arthroplasty Group website on aahks.org for links to the articles we discussed, as well as information on how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group and AUKUS, which is a great resource for arthroplasty surgeons. Please give us a review of five stars, or as I like to call it, a five millimeter augment. And thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.